Hello, I'm Nikki Gamble, Director of Just Imagine and host of In the Reading Corner. Today I'm joined by Abby Elphinstone, author of children's fantasy stories that are packed with gripping adventures and fantastical creatures. This is true of Abby's latest book, Saving Neverland, a sequel to Peter Pan, which has been updated for the 21st century. The story centres on 10-year-old Martha Pennydrop and her young brother Scruff, who are whisked away to Neverland to help save the magical world from the icy grip of Captain Hook's curse, which threatens the survival of Peter Pan, the lost children, and indeed Neverland itself. Now, I have to say that I approach classic sequels with caution, but Abby has done an excellent job bringing a freshness to the story and stamping it with her own trademark, but also retaining the essence of the original. I started by asking her if she'd had a long-held ambition to write her own version of Peter Pan. Well, no, I didn't really sort of even entertain the idea. I thought it was way out of my depth. Puffin came to me and said, would you be interested in writing a modern reimagining or a modern sequel to Peter Pan? And my first sort of gut reaction was, I don't have time. Puffin asked me in the same year I was due to move house three times and have my third baby, three children under five years old. And I thought, there's no way I can take this on. And then I read Peter Pan. And I don't think I'd ever read it as a child. I read it as an adult. And I fell in love with it all, the story of Peter Pan all over again. But it was really problematic to me, this story. Namely, because the ending is such that Wendy Darling's daughter says that Peter has invited her back to Neverland to do his spring cleaning. And when I saw that, I thought, what? (laughs) What kind of message is this to young girls that you can hop over to Neverland to do the housework? And so then I thought, there is absolutely time for this book. I need to make time. There needs to be a modern Peter Pan where girls can go to Neverland to battle pirates and go on huge adventures and save the day. I took it on and it was a bit like the process of moving house. Mostly exciting, but also shot through with panic and feeling totally overwhelmed that you know, I'm going to take a cultural phenomenon and possibly fail and make it my own. But Puffin gave me a really wide brief in terms of the plot. They said, you can do absolutely anything you want with this book. You can make Captain Hook good. You can make Peter Pan grow up. You can freeze Neverland. And when they said that, you can freeze Neverland, I thought, now we're we're speaking the same language um, because I like my books cold. I think it goes hand in hand with growing up in Scotland where Mm -hmm. the winters are long and wild and white And I feel with snow, you're dealing with something that doesn't last. And that gives you a window where magic might be possible after all. It's almost as if snow paves the way for adventure. And some of my favourite books that I've written, Sky Song, um, The Frost Goblin, have been snowy adventures. And indeed, books that I loved when I was little, like The Wolves of Willoughby Chase, Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, they were snowy adventures. So the thought of taking a character like Peter and putting him in a Neverland that was full of ice flumes and frosty forests and icicled caves. That filled me with excitement. And I thought, I think this is an adventure I could write after all. I do have to say, I'm glad you didn't make Captain Hook good. He's irredeemable. (laughs) You said that you reread the book as an adult. Can you actually remember how you experienced Peter Pan as a child? Well, I grew up um, in a, well, outside a tiny village called Edsel in the northeast of Scotland. I grew up there and I grew up 10 minutes away from Kiri Muir, which was where J.M. Barry was born. So I was aware that there was this importance about, a geographical importance about Peter Pan and J.M. Barry to where I grew up. 
But I remember the first time I encountered Peter Pan was in a play. I think it was in Dundee or Edinburgh. And we had really cheap seats. We were right at the back. and We could barely see. But I think that's the best for watching Peter Pan on stage because when they fly the characters to Neverland, you can't see the strings and the ropes. Your belief is suspended that much more. So I remember thinking that it was absolutely mesmeric watching these children fly from a nursery window and arriving at Neverland. But I don't think I read the book when I was younger. I think there's probably a reason for that because J.M. Barry wrote a book called The Little White Bird, where Peter Pan featured in this book as a, a story of his own, and it was aimed at adults. And then he put the play on. After the play was such a success, he then wrote Peter Pan down as a book. And it's a very odd book. It's brilliant, but it's deeply odd as well. But it's odd that the first ever showing of Peter Pan in 1904 as a play, it was almost exclusively for adults. So there were hardly any children in the audience. And that's so strange that this book about eternal youth, about this boy that never grows up, is it actually for children or is it speaking to an adult and getting them to remember what it was like to be a child? So perhaps now would be a good opportunity to hear a little bit about the story. What are you going to read for us, Abby? I'm going to read from the very beginning. So I almost actually am not going to say anything about the story, but I'm going to dive straight in here because it should make sense because it's the start. So chapter one of Saving Neverland. Number 14, Darlington Road in Bloomsbury, London, looks like a perfectly ordinary townhouse. At first glance, anyway. It is tall and thin, with three rows of windows and a blue door with a brass knocker, almost an exact copy of the terraced houses either side of it. And yet, if you were to linger a while outside number 14, you would notice that one of the top floor windows, the one with the white cotton curtains billowing in the breeze, is never shut. Even on the coldest winter nights, when frost clings to the rooftops and the air swirls with snow, you will find this particular window wide open. Had 10-year-old Martha Pennydrop known there was something strange about this window when her family moved into the house a few weeks ago, I very much doubt she would have chosen the room beyond it as her bedroom. But it had been the start of the summer holidays, when nights are warm and bedroom windows are often left open, so she wasn't aware that this one was impossible to shut and that it had been that way for over a hundred years. And she certainly wasn't aware that magic was involved because until the mischief kicks in, magic looks remarkably innocent. So that's the beginning, and so follows a story about a 10-year-old girl called Martha Pennydrop, who's just desperate to grow up. But growing up's a tricky business, because it means saying goodbye to imagination, fun, and magic, because those were the very things that led to something terrible nearly happening to Martha's little brother Scruff, which would have been all Martha's fault. So she's desperate to grow up and forget about childhood. But then Peter Pan turns up at her window. She's actually living in Wendy Darling's house. So the, the, the original house that the Darling children lived in years ago, which Peter Pan visited. And she discovers, Martha discovers strange gold sand in a drawer of her bedside table. It actually is fairy dust. Peter arrives and says, we're going to need every ounce of that fairy dust to get over to Neverland because Captain Hook has frozen the island. And if we don't unfreeze it and save all the magical creatures there, then the ghost of Captain Hook will return. And with it is hideous pirates. 
We've already mentioned that with children's classics from the 19th century, early early 20th century, there are going to be problems. But what was it in particular that had that strong appeal for you? I think a number of things. There's so much to love about the original. The intoxicating wonder of flying over the River Thames and arriving at Neverland. The nail-biting peril of outwitting strange beasts and pirates. The wit and bravado of Peter Pan himself. And that joy and ache, that toing and froing of growing up. I loved all that. I re-loved it when I read it again um, as an adult. But I did realise how complicated and problematic the book was. There's the overt sexism, the racist stereotypes. And then Tinkerbell is portrayed as this sexualized version of a woman who's pitted against Wendy in that sort of stereotypical jealous female uh, relationship. And so I wanted to retain what was really precious about this story and the fact that it is this cultural phenomenon it's endured but there is a lot that needs to be adapted for a modern audience so Mm -hmm. I wanted to retain what was special and precious and then make it a more inclusive and contemporary story. So let's talk a little bit then about your Neverland because it's quite Mm -hmm. different from J.M. Barry's. So I'm, um, I'm dyslexic and my ideas are a total mess when I sit down to write a story so I find that drawing a map acts as a sort of doorstep into my adventure. I draw a world that I want to write about and I fill it with places that I want my characters to visit. And then I get a different colored pen and I draw a journey through this map. And that journey becomes my plot because at all these key places, the characters encounter various obstacles, whether it's physical or mental obstacles. I think it was Vladimir Nabokov said um, the writer's job is to get the main character up a tree. Then once they're up there, chuck rocks at them. The brilliant thing about J.M. Barry's Neverland is that he says it is full of familiar things depending on who's looking at it. Hardly surprising given that the island is a map of the child's mind and that gives you so much freedom when you're creating an adventure because you can take this island called Neverland and then you can tweak it and embellish it and build on it. So there's the Never Sea that existed around the island And I decided the never see was filled with tears that mothers shed or fathers shed when their children leave home because you've got a bit of tragedy with Peter Pan. So Neverland is a map of a child's mind. Whoever's looking at it um, dictates what's there. So Martha and Scruff find things from their own childhoods, like childhood toys and settings, their treehouse that they used to play in as children. That then is seen in Neverland. And it was the same with Wendy and John and Michael. They found a wigwam and an upturned boat and a little house of leaves, things that they had imagined in their childhood. I kept a few things that I loved about Barry's Neverland. There's a Neverbird, and I embellished the Neverbird and gave that creature a really central role in saving Neverland. I think stories are infinitely more interesting when there is a large winged creature at the heart of them. So in Sky Song, I had a golden eagle saving Neverland. We've got the Neverbird. I've got fairies. I've got Tinkerbell. But rather than being famed for her big bosoms, I've got her as a mad keen inventor. But Muddle is my fairy who joins the characters for the the majority of their adventure. And Muddle is fiercely intelligent. She's a poet. She writes great, intense odes to Neverland. She's got a terrible sense of direction, though. So she's in charge of getting the kids to Neverland in the first place, which is a bit of a disaster. Pirates, I have the ghosts of Captain Hook and all his pirates, but I love naming characters. So I've named some really, really bizarre 
pirates. I've got Lingering Pong, Gastronomy Belch, Slippery Scarlet, and The Lost Boys. I wanted to have a girl in The Lost Boys, so they become The Lost Kids. So I, yeah, I tweaked and embellished there, but then I purely invented a lot of other things. I invented the gulper whales, enormous whales studded with stardust that let you swim in their open mouths for hours on end around the island. And there are marsh chomps who Mm. are magical hippos who are vegetarians every day of the week, except Wednesdays when they devour everything in sight. So I had a great fun inventing magical creatures. And I like, I like for children to come across creatures that they think, God, that's so extraordinary and so unusual. And I'm often talking when I do school events to children about the extraordinary creatures that aren't magical that exist in our world. And they're often starting points for me when I do invent really bizarre creatures. In one of my books, The Crackle Dawn Dragon, I had these magical frogs that could burp the alphabet backwards. I remember... Catherine Rundle, she was telling me about African wood frogs and how they can freeze solid in the winter months and stop their heart. They have a self-galvanizing heart so that come spring, they can reawaken and come alive again. And that's not a magical creature, you know, that's just something that exists in our world. So I love writing books that might stem from creatures that I think in our world are extraordinarily magical, but that lend and tip over into fantasy. What about your childhood toys? Were they important to you? And has that made its way into the story? So I'm 38 years old. And until last year, I slept with my teddy bear still on the bed. I don't know what the moment was when I finally decided that was not going to happen anymore. So in the book, both Scruff and Martha have childhood toys that they encounter in Neverland. So Scruff, who's seven years old, has a teddy bear called None the Wiser. And he's very long suffering and he's constantly being clipped round the ear and bashed off lampshades or whatever. But Scruff loves him and he plays a central part in the story. Martha's Teddy, I might not say what that is because he creeps up in a very unexpected way. Peter Pan is partly a story about mothers and mothering, not only Wendy, but Mrs. Darling. And Mm. for reasons that you've explained, you've reimagined that. But there is still this aspect of taking care of each mm. other. And in some sense, Martha is a mother-like character to Scruff. Yeah. I mean, Martha's the older sister and she lives in fear of the terrible day repeating itself. So she feels this terrible sense of responsibility for Scruff. She's in a single parent family. She's only got a dad and the dad is well-meaning, but very, very busy and isn't around that much. So it falls on Martha to look after her little brother Scruff. And initially I wrote the book with this idea of Martha saving Scruff and Martha sorting things out. And then my very wise editor said, I think Scruff is really capable. I think seven-year-olds are capable of a lot more than you think. And I thought, you're right. And so Scruff goes on an adventure. He gets kidnapped very early in Saving Neverland. That's not a spoiler. So the driving force of Martha to go on this adventure is to get her little brother back. She doesn't care about Neverland and saving that. She wants her brother back, but she learns to care. But Scruff doesn't just wait. He's not a passive character. I think seven-year-olds are remarkable creatures. I love their straight talking, their wild ideas, their ferocious bravery. I wanted all those things to come out in little Scruff. And so he yeah, goes on a totally separate adventure, one filled with never birds and frost mm. bears and snow tigers, while Martha is crossing snowbound mountains and forests to find him. So I actually wrote the whole book initially with the protagonist as a boy, 
alongside Peter Pan. So I wanted to have two different types of masculinity, I guess, this bravado, this very masculine in the original sense in Peter, and then a maybe softer, more maternal boy that would lead the, the adventure. But my editor said, we, we love the book, we love the adventure, but we do think that Wilbur should be a girl and that that would counter better against Peter. They were right for that, actually. I rewrote the book with a girl at the helm and it felt more natural to me and more fitting for the adventure. And Scruff, the little boy, originally was a little girl, but I think it did need to be flipped. A lot of your books have very quotable lines. If you were to think of one line from this book, what would sum it up? I really like one of Scruff's lines, because I think that the younger the child, the more brilliant their lines are. Before I tell you what this line is in the book, my five-year-old said the most brilliant line to me the other day. He ran into my bedroom at six in the morning and it was completely dark. And he said, hello, I finished all my dreams. (laughs) And I just thought that was such a wonderful way to wake up to the world. You know, here I am, I finished the dreams, so what's next? (laughs) Um, So I think that, yeah, the younger you are, the more brilliant your lines, your one-liners. In Saving Neverland, Scruff says, I always keep a fork in my pyjama pocket because you never know when you might be invited to a midnight feast. That's one of my favourites. I like this idea. There's another one um, that Martha learns from Peter. The thing about adventures, Martha, is that they don't leave anyone behind. And I like that idea that you can resist the adventure as much as you want, but once it digs its claws in, there's not a lot you can do about it. I do like writing lines about adventure and about magic. In The Snow Dragon, there's a line, you can be late for many things in life, but you should never keep an adventure waiting. And these lines, they do come sort of quite fully formed. Like when I write the books, they're there. And I think it's because... Growing up in Scotland, there was a lot of time for adventures. I didn't have loads of after-school clubs. My parents didn't drive me from playdate to playdate. There was a lot of time being bored. And I think there's a brilliance in being bored because out of boredom, you create, you invent. I think the reason I'm a writer is because I was allowed to be bored. I was allowed to create in my garden and mix potions out of flower petals and mud. I had three siblings, which helped. So it was a busy family. But I do think I'm probably a writer first and foremost, because the wilderness made me one. A sense of adventure is something that you've never really lost. How have the adventures that you've had as an adult informed you as a children's writer? I went up to the Arctic and I went dog sledding um, across snowy valleys and I watched orcas dive for herring and I watched the northern lights flicker across the sky. That was the start of a book called Sky Song. And certainly when I reinvented Neverland into this snowy Wonderland. I was drawing heavily upon an Arctic landscape um, that I saw a few years earlier. Before I had children, I went out to Mongolia. I saw a photo before I went by an Israeli photographer called Asher Svidensky, and it was of a girl called Aishalpan letting loose a golden eagle into the sky. And I thought the photo was incredible. And I read the caption underneath, and it said, There's a tribe of people out in Mongolia called the Kazakh Eagle Hunters. You may have seen the documentary, lots of people have, and most of them are men. There's just one girl who is becoming this eagle huntress, the first eagle huntress. And when I saw that line, I thought, what if I could get out to Mongolia and find this girl? What if I could write her story down? It became Sky Song. I went out to Mongolia. I stayed in a gur. It was so cold at night that my eyelashes froze shut. We went to sleep and it was snowing. We woke up in the morning and all around our girl were footprints of wolves. They hadn't been there when we went to bed. So the wolves must have come down in the night, circled our camp while we slept and then left. But that's what I love about the wild, that it can come secretly and silently in the middle of the night. 
And sometimes the only reason you know it's been in the first place is that footprint in the snow the next morning. But I'm worried I'm going to be sort of known as the author who can only write snowy books. I need to get myself to St. Lucia or somewhere extremely hot and start writing about balmy seas and tropical sands. One of the important ideas in the book is the idea of growing down as well as growing up. Tell us a little bit about that. I think some of the best adults I know, some of the most joyful adults I know and the wisest ones are the ones who have somehow managed to retain that appetite for adventure, humour and joy that children embody. And we become so cynical and knowing when we grow up, the world becomes so much more complex. But I do think there's a case for remembering the essence of childhood and trying to carry that through. And I think Barry seems to be suggesting that to grow up, you've got to say goodbye to adventure and make believe. And that it's inevitable that when you grow up, you'll forget the way, he says, to Neverland and you'll forget how to fly. That might have been the case in Edwardian England, where, you know, men had to earn, women had to get married and have babies. But that's not the case now. There's room for so many different versions of ourselves and and different routes into our into adulthood. And so I wanted to write a book that would champion the art of growing down as well as up. Make believe is the thing that allows us to hold more than one reality. And some people retain that. I wonder whether you get a second shot at it if you become a teacher or you become a parent or a carer, because I was a teacher before I was a writer. And I suddenly started to see the world again through the children's eyes. And as a mother, you then go right back to the beginning. There was a case to be said, yeah, for trying to hold on to that and trying to keep it close so that when the pandemics come and cost of living crisis, the recession and what the world looks desperately gloomy, that there are things that you've retained from your childhood that act as your armour for setting out into the world, for being able to cope with it all. So have any of your adventures that you had in childhood made their way into your stories? When I was walking through the forest with my dad up in Scotland, when I was about in year five, I remember seeing two green eyes. It was late at night. We were walking back through a forest to get to our car and uh, the light was fading. So it was dark and I saw two green eyes peering at me through the forest. And I stopped dead. And I turned to my dad, who was with me, and I said, it's a zombie. And he said, no, it's not. It's a wildcat. There are fewer than 100 left in the UK, and you've just seen one. I think that memory of seeing those two eyes glowing in the dark in a remote forest in Scotland made me want to write about a wildcat called Griff in my first book, The Dream Snatcher, a girl called Moll Pecksniff. I named her after a shower gel in TK Maxx, but I got her sidekick, the wildcat, from that adventure with my dad. You have retained some of the tragic tone from Barry's original story. You include the scene with Peter returning home to find the windows barred. As a child, I remember feeling that his mother was unimaginably cruel. But reading it now, I think that perhaps she was just fearful of losing another child, that it would just be too much to bear. Did you consider giving Peter his own happy ending? Because I've got quite a sunny nature. So I thought, yeah, let's redeem Peter Pan. Let's get him back inside the nursery and give him a family. But no matter how hard I tried to change Peter, he wouldn't change. And I think that's part of his power. So I retain his bravado. He says unspeakably arrogant things like, shall we get on with the adventure? Or would you like to admire me a little longer? I keep his enthusiasm for danger He says things like, so much peril and it's not even lunchtime, things that my mum would just sort of be aghast at. I have a younger brother called Tom 
who was so adventurous, wildly so, that he was banned from playing with any of the neighbours. All the neighbours' parents said, you cannot play with Tom Elphinstone. So Peter's a bit like that in that sense. And I cling on to his reservations about family. Right at the end, Scruff says, you know, would you like a hug, Peter? Because he removes himself from the celebration at the end. And um, Peter says, no, I'd like another adventure instead. And so there is a moment when inevitably Scruff and Martha must go back to the mainland and grow up or grow down or grow sideways, whatever they want to do. And I take Peter back there too. And there's a moment where I've got his hand on the window pane and you think, is he going to go in? It was one of my favorite scenes to write because I spent so long waiting, thinking, are you (laughs) going to go inside? But I don't think it's a spoiler to say that he doesn't because I think that it's important to retain what is precious about this original book. And the precious fact is, this is a boy who will never grow up. You know, all children Mm. except one grow up. Um, Mm. And I think that's what makes it so powerful. And it's not modelling that as a type of behaviour to be upheld. And Martha quite rightly says, Peter, you've got it wrong. You badly need a parent (laughs) or a carer or someone to look after you. You badly need to understand yourself in relation to other people. And Peter's fault is that whenever things get a bit emotional, he forgets. He just forgets key characters like Martha or Scruff. He'll go, I, you know, I haven't a clue who you are halfway through the adventure, but he, he won't ever learn from his mistakes. So he can never grow as a character. So he's stuck in this mm-hmm. sort of eternal stage of not growing up. And it means he has adventures innumerable, you know, like other children will never dream of, but mm-hmm. he's barred from that one joy that some children understand. Are there any other children's classics that you'd like to write sequels to? Oh, The Water Babies. That I really loved as a child. What is it about The Water Babies? Do you know, I remember the film more than the book, but I think it's this going from a place of reality and safety, like the nursery in Peter Pan, and that's a country house in um, England, then going through to a magical world where things Mm. are more ridiculous than in real life and then going back out into the real world again and feeling slightly changed by it. Looking back to your first novel, The Dream Snatcher, how do you think your writing's developed? There are bits of The Dream Snatcher, my debut book, that I, I just can't read because I think they're so bad. <laughs> but then I get letters from children saying, my favourite of all your books is The Dream Snatcher. So I don't know whether children mind about the writing style, but I feel I've learned a lot. I never did a creative writing course or really studied how to write. I just loved books and I taught English at secondary school level. So I didn't go in with much structure. So I think I was writing what I thought children wanted to read and and not really writing what I should have been writing. That absolutely was staying true to myself. I feel like my narrative voice has sharpened up over the last few years. Abby, you've told us that you were a teacher and I wonder what you did in your own classroom to foster a love of reading. Model it. So when the kids see you reading, they see that books are of value to you. Then they start to understand that books are important. I remember, you know, telling kids what I was reading at the time, raving to them about books. You must read this. I couldn't put it down and sharing it with them. So anything I had at home, I I bring in and, and let them read it. Taking ideas from them. So listening to them as well. When they said, oh, I read this, it was really good. I take it home. It was terrible. But, um, but I'd read it anyway. Definitely modeling reading as something of significance and importance letting kids have time, even if it was just 10 minutes of of one day, to read, give them time to read as well. And and I didn't force them to read fiction and novels. It was graphic novels as well, and non-fiction, encyclopedias, whatever. It was just some form of narrative. 
what about writing? What top tips do you have that you can share with us? When I talk to children in schools, I say there's three tips. One is get outside. The natural world is filled to the brim with wonder. Get out and experience it. Two is be curious. I think if you apply two special words to almost any scenario, you can come up with a story. And that are, those words are what if. So if you see a footprint in the sand down on the beach, what if that footprint belongs to a creature that doesn't technically exist? What then? What if the door in the village that nobody else has noticed leads to another kingdom? And the other one is, if you're going to write a book, write one, don't give up. It took me seven years, four failed books, 96 rejection letters from agents to get my first deal. So you keep trying. Don't spend too much time on Twitter and Instagram. It can feel like you're making connections, which you are, but you're not writing the story. And that happens away on your own. Write the story you want to tell. Like, Don't try and climb onto the bandwagon of some big fad or craze. Write what you want to write. Abby, it's been such a pleasure having you as my guest in the reading corner today. Thank you for taking us into the world of Neverland and also telling us so much about your writing life. 